So I want to take a moment and just thank all of you who were participating, who made this campus available, who donated camp, who donated candy, who decorated Trumps, who just were here to greet people and serve people. Myself, Pastor Ken, we met a number of people who don't go to church, who choose to come here because they say this is a place we know is safe for our children. Man, I got to tell you, CVCC, I love the fact that that is your reputation in our community, that if they had one place to go, they trust you. And so I just want to take a moment and celebrate and thank you just for the great work you did and for the great work you're doing. I also have another statement I need to make, and that is an apology. In your uh, bulletin, you'll see a flyer on one side, it's Operation Christmas Child, and that's just a Uh, an encouragement to you to drop by the Operation Christmas Child table. I know that Christmas is still two months away, but if we want children around the world to receive a gift and learn about the gospel, we need to do it a month early. And so you can participate in a number of ways. You can go to the Operation Christmas Child table in the courtyard. But if you turn it over, here's my apology. We forgot six people. It's hor. I told you, and like last week, I said, hey, if something goes wrong, I'm responsible. Here we go. <laughs> and so I wanted to take a moment and make sure that you all know that uh, Damien and Stevie, Dylan, Nicole, G, and Rachel are indeed members, and I need you to do me a favor. Yes, you can applaud for them. <laughs> but in order to be official, I need you to help a pastor out. See, last week we voted on 39 new members, but we forgot six. So can you help me out and do another vote? These are six people who have gone to the classes. They have met with the elders. These are people that believe as we do and want to serve Jesus together with you. But the last thing they need is an approval from you, the congregation. And so... um, If you will accept these six individuals into our family as members, will you please respond with a resounding yes? Yes. And if you have any concerns, thank you for that, by the way. Love it that the little ones are voting too. Um, If you have any concerns, please come and talk to me after. And now into all that you're waiting for, uh, I want to start this sermon with a question. Do you believe in marriage? Not do you believe that there is such a thing as marriage. What I'm asking is, do you believe in the God-ordained power that unites a man and a woman together that not only blesses you in a miraculous way, but reflects through your life in a miraculous way? Do you believe in marriage like that? See, I do. 28 years ago, Gretchen and I entered into marriage in the confidence and belief that God would do something miraculous in us and through us that he couldn't do and or wouldn't do without each other. I'm a different person because of my wife. I'm a better person because of my wife. I'm a better pastor because of my wife. I'm a better Christian because of my my wife. And I got to tell you, almost always... I'm happier because of my wife. I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to be honest. Almost always, I'm happier because of my life. I believe in marriage. Here's my concern. Say, I think I'm a dying breed. 
There's a study done in 2021 that asked people about their belief in marriage and their experience in marriage. 61% of those who were born between 1946 and 1964, right, so the generation before me, 61% of them said, yeah, we believe in marriage, and yep, we experienced a miraculous power of God in our union, 61%. Not overwhelming, but positive compared to my people. Those who were born between 1965 and 1980, only 47% said they believe in marriage and have experienced fulfillment in the midst of their marriage. Only 47 Here's the troubling stats, is, and these final numbers aren't in yet, but the generation after me, my children, they're predicting that that's going to be nearly in the 20% of that generation who says, yes, we believe in the miraculous power of God-ordained marriage, and we have confidence that we can experience it. And that's not just an American thing, globally. My kids' generation are getting married later than any other generation in history, including those generations with world wars. Here's three reasons why, they think. Experts say here's three important reasons. Number one, cohabitation before marriage. Why get married when you can experience everything in marriage without being married? First reason, cohabitation undermining marriage. Number two, I'm just giving results. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> Number two, a decline in understanding and agreement of what marriage is. And people don't even agree what marriage is anymore. Third, here's the most alarming is my kids' generation, they don't think that they'll experience the type of marriage that my grandparents had, that Gretchen and I have. My children and their generation think that this idea of marriage it's unattainable for them. And as a result, fewer are getting married. And if they do get married, they're getting married later. This study led one Christian theologian to say this. If we want the institution of marriage to survive, we need to spend less time protecting it from culture and more time rebuilding the institution within our churches and our homes. Let me say that again. Christian theologian says this, if we want the institution of marriage to survive, we need to spend less time protecting it from culture and more time rebuilding it within our churches and our homes. Today, marriage is under fire. It's being redefined by culture and by people who claim to be Christians. It is too easily thrown aside and ended by culture and Christians, it is too innocently and naively entered by culture and Christians. Today, the institution that God is destined for significance is fighting for existence, not just in America, but around the world. But here's your hope. See, this isn't new. See, many people believe that the idea of fidelity and the institution of marriage was under fire all the way back in the Apostle Paul's day. And that's what led the Apostle Paul to write a powerful portion of his letter to the Ephesian church. See, I think the Apostle Paul, he believes in marriage too. 
And his opinion is simple. If you are a saint, if you're a child of God, if you're an instrument of God that's been plucked out of the darkness of this culture, filled with his Holy Spirit, and put back in to be a reflection of his glory, if you consider yourself a believer who has accepted your forgiveness from Jesus Christ, you should be living in your marriage differently than everybody else. I'd like to show it to you. If you have your Bibles, will you join me in the letter of Ephesians? If you're joining with us for the first time, Ephesians in the New Testament, it's about this far in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing this letter to a great church filled with great people. This isn't a letter written to broken churches. This isn't a letter written to broken people. This is a letter written to a great church filled with great people who are tending to forget who they are in Christ. The Apostle Paul is letting them know that they are saints that it's a position given to them by the mercy of Christ Jesus. But the last three chapters of this letter are focused on how to live our lives. If we're to be saints, what does that look like in our lives? And if you really want to understand this passage, we have to go back to the end of last week's passage. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Remember, Paul says to walk as wise Christians. Look what he says, verse 15. Therefore, be careful, be mindful, be watchful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And here's what that looks like. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Remember, making the most of your time means to redeem what is broken, redeem what is lost. Spend your time not buying bigger houses, buying better cars. Spend your time redeeming things in culture that has been lost and broken because of sin. Verse 18, don't get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Number one, he says, redeem that which is broken. Number two, be led, Paul says. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't use chemicals and devices of this world to help you navigate life. Allow the Holy Spirit to strengthen you and guide you and direct you. Number three, You want to walk as a wise Christian, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Quit complaining about everything and be thankful. And look at the fourth one. If you want to walk as wise Christians, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be submissive to one another. That term submissive, it means to choose to arrange oneself under another. Paul says, you want to walk as wise Christians, you need to see everyone else as more important than yourself. Choose to willfully align yourself underneath everyone else where you're putting their needs, their desires, and their life ahead of yours. You want to walk as wise Christians, man, all of us as a church need to be submitting to one another. And you might be, well, what's that look like? Paul gave us other passages to give some color to this. Look at Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. In Philippians, he said this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. Look at something Jesus said in Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
So within that context of Paul saying, listen, here's how you walk as wise Christians. Be focused on redeeming what has been broken and lost because of sin. Spend your time learning how to be more and more led by the Holy Spirit. Be more and more thankful in your life and work on submitting yourselves to one another, giving preference to others over yourself. It's that context that gives rise to this often misunderstood passage in verse 22. See, if your Bible's like mine, there's a new heading. Marriage is like Christ in the church. Or some sort of heading as if Paul starts a new idea in verse 22. But that wasn't the purpose of that heading. Bible authors or, or interpreters put that heading in there to help you understand this is an important lesson for you. They put that heading in there to make sure you could find it easily. It was never intended to help you, to have you understand that Paul's starting a new subject. Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Submit to each other. Verse 22 then, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Something I want to make sure, wives, you understand that there's a word missing in the Greek that you find in verse 22. See that term submit or be subject to? It's not in the Greek. Here's what it actually says in the Greek. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So let's read verse 20, 21, and 22 together, right? Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ and wives to your husbands as to the Lord. That term submission is certainly implied, but it's not a command. It's not a directive. This is not a command to obey your husbands. This is an example. This is an opportunity. Wives, if you want to live life, your life as a wise Christian, redeeming that which is broken by sin, that which is lost by culture, you want to be led by the Spirit, you want to be thankful in all things, you want to demonstrate the submission of placing yourself, willingly arranging yourself under the responsibility of another. Paul says, wives, a great way to do that is in your marriage. Wives to your husbands, as to the Lord. What you expect to receive from God, will you receive from your husbands? Accept his guidance. Receive his protection. Pay attention to what he desires. See, Paul's like, man, you want to understand how to be a reflection of who God is in the midst of a broken, kooky culture? Wives to your husbands, as to the Lord. It's not a command, it's not a directive, it's an opportunity. You want to know how to reflect Jesus in the midst of a broken culture. Choose to willingly arrange yourself underneath the responsibility of your husband. And some of you might be saying, well, Brian, that's dumb. I'm better than him in just about everything. <laughs> My wife, too. I was just talking to someone outside before first service. Man, one of the main reasons I married Gretchen is because she's better than me in just about everything. Benson Genetics needed Gretchen for our survival. <laughs> so why? Why does that reflect who God is? Why is Paul saying, here's an opportunity, wives? 
Willingly arrange yourself underneath the responsibility of your, of your husband. Look at verse 23. For because the husband is the head of the wife, don't stop there, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. A term head described as someone who is, who is the responsible party. Look at how uh, Paul has used this term already in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Just turn the page in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Says this. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church as a responsible party which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all and in all. Look at Ephesians 4, 15. Turn the page back, Ephesians 4, 15. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Paul says it to another church this way. Look at Colossians 2, 8 and 10. See to it, no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Hey, don't let people just start spinning things for you according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather according to Christ. Don't pay attention to what other people are saying. Listen to what Jesus is saying. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Look at what he says a few verses later, verses 18 and 19. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated with, without cause by his fleshly mind, he continues, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Like Jesus is the responsible party over everything that happens within the church. Let's go back to the text now. Look what Paul says. For the husband is head of the wife, the responsible party. It's not an authoritative term. It's not an authoritative turn. Husband is the head, the responsible party of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives to their husbands. Paul says this is not a command. Nowhere in here is this a command or an imperative or a directive. It's an opportunity. Ladies, man, if you want to reflect who Jesus is, willingly arrange yourself. Choose to do this under the responsibility of your husband. And just in case, guys are like, that's right. See, I used to go around before I went to seminary. When I was in high school, one of my friends showed me this text, and I used to run around after every girl say, submit, 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 submit. A, that term's not in the passage. B, this isn't talking about men to women. This is talk about a relationship, a God-ordained relationship between husbands and wives. And third, I didn't understand my role in it. Let's remember, 
how Jesus exercises his headship, his responsibility over the church. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We go here often. I want to keep going here because I think this is such an important passage for Christians today. Because we are called to model the attitude and ministry of Jesus in all aspects of our lives, but especially in our marriage. Look at what he says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, Paul says, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ladies, you want to know how to walk in your marriage as a saint and instrument of God. The same way you look to Jesus for fulfillment, protection, guidance. Look to your husbands in that same way. And listen, I've talked to a number of you saying, Brian, that just doesn't feel right. I don't know, Brian, that doesn't feel right in my heart. That just feels wrong. It feels backward. And let me give you an opinion why I think that's so. Back in Genesis, you remember how everything started? God built everything and everything was great. Everything was good. Everything was fantastic. But then sin entered through Adam and Eve. And then God made a curse. You remember that? Cursed Adam, cursed Eve, cursed the serpent. Look what he said to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And I would say, in pain, you continue to parent children. It's just different. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That term rule, the husband will want this authoritative, dominating position over you. The term rule said, here's the result. This perfect relationship, this union between husband and wife I created, it's forever tarnished, it's forever changed. Your husband's not going to get it. He's going to want to rule you and dominate you. And he says, and you're going to have this desire for your husband. And some of you are like, oh, I haven't desired my husband for four years. Here's what it means. A term desire means to hunger, to devour, to consume it means to destroy, have this desire to take over that position. As an example, look at what he says in Genesis 4, 7. So when God's talking to Cain and Abel, right, about their offering, he says, if you do well, will not your, your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, look at this. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. It's not talking about a sexual desire. It's saying, man, it is this sin is right outside wanting to just consume you and destroy you. Paul said, or God says, it was part of the curse, this relationship between husband and wife, it's forever messed up because of sin. He's going to want to rule over you and dominate over you. He's going to be selfish and self-centered. Any wives say amen to that? But you're also going to have this desire. It's not going to feel right 
to have him protect you, to have him provide for you, to have him care for you. It's going to be difficult and challenging for you to willingly align yourself underneath the responsibility of your husband. Why doesn't it feel right? Sin, sin's messed up this whole thing in marriage. But that's why it fits in Ephesians chapter 5. Because remember, Paul says, you're no longer under the authority of sin. You're different. You're a saint, ladies. God plucked you out of the darkness of this kooky culture filled you with his Holy Spirit and put you back into the world so you can live differently and be a reflection of his glory. And when people see you in your marriage, they're going to see something about Jesus. They may not believe in scripture, but they will see the evidence of scripture in your life. Paul's writing to ladies, ladies, this is not a directive. This is not a command. This is an opportunity You want to know how to walk as wise Christians, redeeming what's been broken. You want to talk about something broken by sin? Marriage, this relationship between husbands and wives. Ladies, please make every effort to redeem that original relationship in your home. Be led by the Spirit. Ladies, be thankful. And willingly arrange yourself Get underneath the responsibility of everyone. This isn't just husbands. We're to have everyone place ourselves underneath as make everyone else more important than ourselves. Ladies, in the same, in your marriage, here's an opportunity. You want to know how to redeem marriage, ladies, to your husbands as to the Lord. It's not a command to obey. It's an opportunity to reflect who Jesus is. Ladies, I hope I haven't lost you at this point. And guys, here's the deal. The reason I've had to spend half of my sermon talking about two verses is because, guys, we haven't done our job for generations. There is a directive. There is a command in this passage, and it's not to the ladies. It's to the husbands. Paul is very clear. This is an opportunity for the wives. Fellas, this is not an option for you. This is a directive. This is a command. Listen to what he says. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Here's a directive. Here's the command. Ladies, you got an opportunity. Hey, ladies, this would be awesome if you could do this. God will do an amazing thing. Fellas, quit screwing this up. Love your wives. Agape, committed, communal. This love never fails. Love your wives as Christ loved you. Then Paul gave us four standards for that. For examples, Paul says, here's how Jesus did it. Number one, he gave himself up for her. Jesus gave himself up for her. You remember how we described that. He sacrificed everything for the church. So they would have to sacrifice nothing for him. Jesus gave himself for you in hopes that you would respond with humility and acceptance. You know that? Jesus loved you even in the depths of your sin. Before you loved him, Jesus loved you. Husbands, the same way. 
Paul says, Jesus gave himself for her. Number two, verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Jesus sanctified. Jesus not only sacrificed himself, but he remains actively involved in our lives, gently removing more and more of our sin and filling us with more and more of his characteristics. Jesus didn't just sacrifice himself for our salvation. He remains active in our lives, massaging out our rough areas and filling us with more and more of his characteristics. Jesus gave, Jesus sanctified. Here's number three, Jesus, what I said, revitalized. Look at this, verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. Look at this, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Man, all of the effects of sin is gonna be wiped away from your life more and more. This is the activity of God. This is the activity of Jesus in your life. Jesus sacrificed everything for you. Jesus is actively involved in your life to rid your life of more and more sin and fill your life with more and more of Christ. And need I say, I think Jesus is a lot more gentle with me than oftentimes I am with others with their sin. Third, he revitalizes the church. His goal is to take away all the effects of sin. No spot, no wrinkle, no any such thing. And lastly, that they would be holy and blameless, that they'd be set apart, that they'd be instruments of God. Remember, that's what being a saint is all about. He plucked your broken self out of the brokenness of culture, filled you with his Holy Spirit, and placed you back in as his instrument of glory. Paul says, man, you want to understand marriage, fellas? You want to understand the directive of God for your wife? This is what Jesus does for you. Jesus gave himself. He sanctifies the church. He revitalizes them. He is active. He is all involved and all consumed with ministering in the lives of his church. Husbands, the same way. Look in verse 28. So, notice he uses a lot more words with husbands. Paul's being very clear, very distinct, making sure that we don't miss this. This is how Jesus did it. Verse 28, so husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. Husbands, you treat your wife the way Jesus treats his church. So here's the rest of the chart. Jesus gave himself. Husbands, give yourself. Sacrifice anything and everything for the betterment and fulfillment of your wife. You don't get to be selfish. You don't get to have your way. That's not what this is about. Jesus, in fact, went to Gethsemane, right? And he prayed up to God right before he suffered and died. Hey, if there's any other way to do it, I'm in. Then what did Jesus say? Not my will, not my way, your will, your way. Husbands, you want to reflect who Jesus is? Give of yourself. Be sacrificial. Don't exercise your role as an authority. Humble yourself, arrange yourself underneath and consider her as more important than yourself. Give of yourself. 
Number two, Jesus sanctified. You minister. Minister to her. Serve your wife's soul. Gently massage out the rough spots of her life. And fill her with more and encourage her and empower her with more of the characteristics of God. Minister to her soul. It's not just enough to serve her life, but you need to minister to her soul. Gently and lovingly, the way that Jesus ministers to you. Minister to your wife, fellas, the same way. This ought to be all-consuming for you. Third, Jesus revitalized us. So you revitalize her. Just as Jesus committed to presenting his bride, the church, without any spot or wrinkle, have that same commitment to your wife. What can you do, fellas, to reverse the loss, pain, and scarring way that women live in this sinful and broken world? A couple weeks ago, I was talking to some young ladies at church. They said, Brian, you don't know what it's like to be a lady in this culture. I don't. I know what it's like to be a six foot six man in this culture. Husbands, man, you need to recognize the struggle that your wives have living out there. And how can you love your lives to revitalize, to reduce the aging and scarring and pain of being a woman raised in this broken culture? Man, if women are ever to be respected and loved and cherished and protected and lifted up and honored anywhere in the world. It should be here and it should be in your marriage. Husbands, you should be all consumed in this. Revitalizing her, repairing the damage to her soul and her heart that happens out there. You need to be about healing that process in your home. Fourth, just as Jesus set us apart, man, you need to set her apart. You're not her authority. Jesus is. You're equal members. You're co-heirs of the kingdom of God. Husband, sacrifice yourself for her every day. Minister to her soul. Equip and empower her to be a brighter reflection of Jesus in everything she does. Revitalize her. Do everything you can to defend her and heal her from the pain of what she experiences out there. But fellas, when all of that is said and done, let her go. Don't micromanage her service to the Lord. She is an instrument of God. Plucked out of this dark world, filled with his Holy Spirit, the same way you are placed back into culture to be a light in a way that you cannot even imagine. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves his church. He gave himself for her. Man, he spends every waking moment sanctifying you, gently massaging out the brokenness of your life and filling you with characteristics of himself. And he revitalizes you. He's hard at work to rid your life of the effects of sin and the brokenness of the evil that we have brought in. Man, husbands, be dedicated and all consumed with serving your wife that way. 
And then if you're loving your wife, equipping her and empowering her in the kingdom of God, and you're helping her be revitalized from all the brokenness out there, then let her go and watch her shine. As an instrument of God, you are not her authority. You are not to micromanage her. Sit back and watch her reflect Jesus in ways that you can only dream. Fellas, it's time to stop demanding submission. And it's time to start loving our wives the way Jesus modeled for us. In this passage, as Paul is describing what our sainthood looks like, wives, he gave you an opportunity. Husbands, he gave you a command. And now he gives a call to the church. Let me wrap it up this way. Look at the end of chapter 5. He says this. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to the wife and the two shall become one flesh. He goes all the way back to what Jesus set up in marriage because of what God has done. This marriage, it's your responsibility. That's what Paul is saying. You want to have a marriage that reflects the glory of God? Do your job, get it done. It's not culture's job. It's not mom and dad's job. You get married. This is your responsibility. This is on you. Marriage is a God-ordained institution to be a reflection of his glory. The church and marriage, only two institutions designed for that purpose. God looks at the couple and Paul goes back to what God said. You're one flesh. It's your responsibility. Get it done. And look at verse 32 and 33. It says this mystery of great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his wife, even as himself. There's a command. And the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. Paul says, you want to know what happens when we both do our job? He says, it's a mystery. Man, something happens that people look at it and they don't get it. Can I be honest, after 28 years of being married to my wife, I don't get it either. How God took a broken man, united him with a gracious, beautiful woman, used that 28 years to shape him and grow him, to enable him to father four sons. Man, how God did that, I don't know. But he did it. Paul says, you want to bring the miraculous back into your marriage? You want people to see your marriage as God designed it to be? Ladies, here's an opportunity. As to the Lord, to your husband, fellas, step up. Love your wives. It's not about you anymore. It's all about her. Make it happen. Husbands, love your wives. Ladies, help a brother out, huh? Again, it's not a command to you. I just want to, I'm just telling what Paul's saying, right? Guys, you're getting the heavy stuff. Ladies, it's like, hey, we're not so worried about you, but help us out. Husbands, love your wives. Get it done, fellas, ladies. Can you help us out with respect? The term respect with reverence, even when we don't deserve it. In my 28 years as often, ladies, you want to see something happen in your marriage. Choose to willingly place yourself under the responsibility of your husband. 
And ladies, I promise, we will be about making sure that your husband is loving you. We have your backs. Fellows, love your wives. Ladies, revere your husbands. And sit back and watch God work. The reason I love this passage is because Paul's talking to good Christians, part of a great church who live in a broken culture just like ours. Man, we're not the first group of Christians living in kooky culture. And Paul's writing to these Christians and he's writing to you. You want to know how to reflect Christ as a saint? Build your marriage. It's a God-ordained institution that not only brings you fulfillment in ways you can't even imagine, but it will reflect his glory in ways that you can't even imagine as well. So do you have the same confidence in marriage that Paul does? I hope so. Fellas, it starts with you, and if you need help, let me know. Our elder board does believe it's time to stop protecting marriage from everyone else and start building marriage right here. So we've set aside part of our budget to invest in you and to help you and to help equip you and empower you on how to do that. Fellas, you need help, just let me know. But I do believe this is what God calls for us. We are instruments of God plucked out of this dark culture, filled with his spirit and placed back in to be a reflection of his glory, to be models and visual representations of who Jesus is 